guys. Welcome back to the Topic Game Podcast. I'm Kaima Tini, and today we'll have Michael Steen as a guest on our podcast. He's an interpreter, actor, writer, director, producer, and stand-up comedian who has acted and worked with multiple Academy Award-winning actors, filmmakers, producers, and Fortune 500 leaders. He's also the host of the Longshot Leaders Podcast, which tells the story of underdogs who have found success. Thank you, Michael, for joining us on the podcast. It's lovely to have you. My pleasure. And Michael Stein, and you could remember that just by, you know, it, you know, if my first name was Frank and my middle name was Anne, I'd be Frankenstein. But you can call me Michael Stein. That's my name, Michael Stein. <laughs> Is that your nickname, Frankenstein, or you just put those two together? What's, I think you said Steen, so I, that's uh, that's uh, Stein. But uh, what did you say? What'd you say? Is it like, do you like to kind of combine uh, Frankenstein, or is it kind of like always oh, Stan, like those like kind of like mixed up type of things? I gotta, I gotta tell you, your your audio is like it sounds like you're talking through a tunnel a little bit. Oh really? Oh, yeah. I, I try to change my microphone real quick. Let me see if it works. Are you using the computer mic? Uh, well, do you hear me better now? A little bit the same, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make lemonade. <laughs> if <laughs> we'll you want, to try and see like what's going on. How goes wait? I know what's the problem here. Do you, is this? Uh, I think I it's a little better. Yeah, what, what'd is you do there? I, I think I connected to a wrong thing. Before. Okay, is okay. it like better now? It is. All right, perfect. I'm going to just go restart the whole thing. Just to you got it. So what's your last name, Stein? Or Yeah, you got it. That's Stein. All right. So hello, guys. Welcome back to the Taco Fame Podcast. I'm Kylie Montini. Today, we have Michael Stein as a guest of the podcast, who is an interpreter, actor, writer, director, and producer, and stand-up comedian who's acted and worked with multiple Academy Award winners, actors, filmmakers, producers, and Fortune 500 leaders. He's also the host of the Longshot Leaders podcast, which tells the story of underdogs who have found success. Thank you, Michael, for joining us on podcast. It's so lovely to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. So, like, what is like your long shot story? Like, as the name of like your podcast. So, like, what is like your long shot story? I give you like a three minute version of what it is. So, basically, I'm a long shot. I feel like I come from a long, long line of long shots. My grandmother escaped the Russian concentration camps on her way to America. Mm-hmm. My dad was a New York homeless street kid, homeless, you know, and he became a multimillionaire only to be homeless again because of, due to a re- reckless lifestyle. My, uh, so I had to sleep in the same room with my grandmother until I was nine years old, you know, and and because we were a poor family, lived in a rich neighborhood, but I was, uh, you know, had a lot of problems, you know, of, you know, I wasn't supposed to be born. I had ADHD, health issues. I was an unplanned child. You know, I just, you know, had a had a lot of issues uh mm. and i only had the only success i had was making people laugh and um and then when i saw the movie rocky like most american kids i said hey here's a guy like me you know he's not successful he keeps on trying gets back up you know he's not very good in school he's not smart but uh the, the difference between this guy and myself is he's physically fit so i decided from that day on I'm going to be physically fit. So I worked out every day. And by the time I was 16, I became a physical fitness trainer when I was in high school. And I said, oh, time plus effort equals success. Mm -hmm. So then I decided, I told my high school tutor, I said, I want to be an entrepreneur, 
an actor and a stand-up comedian. She says, you know, you might want to work with her hands, be a gardener or something, because not everybody's meant to do what they want to do. And I said, screw you. My dad never finished the eighth grade. I'm And he made millions. Granted, he's living in a van now, but, you know, he, he did well. So then I said, I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm not going to live in a van. So day after high school, started my own business, failed miserably. Long shot leader, up and down, right? So then I, I waited six months, took some classes at a city college, and I um, did stand up. It did really well. Brought a lot of people there. And I said, hey, if I could t- bring all these people to a dance club, which was really big in the late 80s, you know, I can make a lot of money. So I started promoting dance clubs, became the number one dance club, nightclub promoter in my age bracket in Los Angeles. Uh, and from there, I was able to meet a lot of people, got my first acting role playing Dirt Diggler in the Dirt Diggler story, which became the movie Boogie Nights, which I appear in as well, made my own movies after that. Uh, and uh, I got close to a movie deal in Hollywood by making one of my award winning short films, Ooh. but I didn't, it didn't get close to a deal like it got close, but like it didn't happen. So um, they wanted to do one of my screenplays, make it into a movie. Just didn't turn over a deal. I said, screw you guys. I'm going to make my own movie. But I was broke and in debt because I left my nightclub business to, to work in film production. So I said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur again. Started my own business, tarpsplus.com, selling tarps on the internet. And within six months, I made over half a million dollars. So I was able to make my movie, which starred Academy Award winner, Faye Dunaway, Andy Dick, Coolio, many other actors you've seen in movies. And it did well, but I didn't really, wasn't a blockbuster, didn't make a lot of money, but it did decently. And I said, you know, I'm going to take care of this business that I started. And it, since, you know, it's made well over a hundred million dollars and that's, it's, it's continues to grow, but that's my long shot story of up and down. So I said, if I ever was going to do a podcast, it'd be about people that overcome large obstacles to find success. And that's why I'm talking to you here today. That's really awesome. Like how did like, like your business selling tarps, like kind of build that money in such a short time? Like, was it all this business or is it all this kind of promotions and ads and all these things? It started off slowly, but it picked up really rapidly. I'm a workaholic. I, 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 don't, I just like to work. I'm, I'm naturally hyper. So that was the beautiful thing about the internet. It's like you could just spend more time. I could wake up at like two o'clock in the morning if I can't sleep and I could work on the website. So back then, you know, it was like I, I got one sale and I was like, holy crap. That made, gave me energy to like work even harder and get a second sale and a third sale. And then the first big order I got, I remember I was like working on a Friday. I was getting like maybe a couple orders a day, maybe three or four. And a guy is like three months in, two months in. And he's like, I need $17,000, worth, you know, $18,000 worth of tarps uh, to be in Jersey. And I was like, holy shit. I said, well, no problem. We can get it to you there. And first I had to find the tarps. Then I had to figure out how am I going to get these tarps across the country, you know, uh, from you know, on a Friday to a Monday. So I got one of my production uh, film production friends that was working as a PA, picked up a film production truck, got the tarps, went to drove across the country without sleeping for three days. Mm -hmm. I was going from Los Angeles to New York and dropped them off. And I was just, you know, I was a hustler. So, you know, basically I was able to get that big order and that helped me invest more in the business and create and advertise more and, and that's, I just kept on doing that and double downing on that. And that's how it just grew pretty fast. That's amazing. Like, I don't know how you did manage to sleep for three days. I don't know how I would. I days. Would have 30 days would be insane. Three days. 
Yeah. He's like, is this like, that's crazy. I wouldn't last that at all. I'll be, I'm done. I'm going to sleep. This is honestly horrible. Yeah. No, I, uh, I've, I was used to that from promoting nightclubs. You know, sometimes you just don't sleep because you just stay up all the time promoting clubs. Mm-hmm. Like that's the best part of it. If you stay up late so often, you're like, oh, this is just another day for me. Yeah. I'm just sitting here in a truck, you know, plus I had the guy. So I would sleep on the floor of the truck. He drove for like, you know, 12 hour shift. And then we went back and forth. So I did get to like rest a little bit. Mm, that's not bad though. Like you just switch, you guys just sleep and you're like, oh, okay. You're switching. You know, it's just honestly the best, like easy part on your end. <laughs> right. That was, a, it was an adventure. And then we had, we took a train back and we, uh, we, we snuck into one of those sleeper cars cause we only had regular seats and we all, almost got thrown off the train for doing Oh, that. really? Yeah, like a bunch of guys, two guys wearing a gold gym shirt and another like conductor. It was like a, like in a movie, you know, it's like, we're going to kick you off the train. Like, like, well, we're sorry. What can we do about this? Like, how much money you got in your pocket? You know, I was like, oh, here you go. And they let us, you know, go back to our seats and down the train. Uh, like, at least you didn't get kicked off that. At least you just made an excuse to get some sleep. Now right, like- right. I envision like, you know, like, you know, like getting actually thrown off and like getting tumbling and everything like in the movies, you know? Yeah. I kind of want. I kind of picturing that though, just getting thrown off and just falling, don't know where to go. Yeah, what are we gonna do now? Like, I don't know. Just let's follow the tracks back to the nearest town or something. I don't know. That's, that's what. But we got to stay on the train. Mm-hmm. And like, how did like the movie Rocky kind of inspire you to see yourself and start exercising? I I grew up with a New York homeless street dad, so you know when I saw that movie. My dad was doing well at the time when I saw that movie and my went with my parents and I was like, here's the story I've been hearing my whole life. This guy lives like, you know, he's not homeless, but he's nearly homeless and living terribly. And he kind of dressed like my dad, you know, like a East Coast guy. And I was like, I identify really was, you know, and, and this guy is not smart. You know, he says he's dumb, you know, and everybody says I'm kind of dumb. You know, I'm not I, I was but I was put in a special needs school when I was, you know, eight years old. And um, so they just didn't know about ADHD like they do now or what, you know, or whatever issue I had. And, um, so basically it just ringed to me, you know, and, and plus I've heard about, you know, this word hustler my whole life. Cause my dad, my mom would talk about, you want to be a hustler. You want to be a, you know, somebody that like works really hard and, you know, picks themselves up by the, you know, from, from nothing to something. And that was a romantic thing to me. So I said, I won't be like that guy who, who just keeps on getting back up, even though he gets knocked down. Mm-hmm. Like, like this is like this. Obviously, that's a point thing about being kind of an actor. Watch people like see things as an actor, or even like behind the scenes. Is that like you see people that really are just like you as a person, even though you do not know the person that is make believe. Well, maybe make believe. A lot of characters are true characters are in real life, but like. To actually see that movie and see that person like you is just like an unreal feeling. And Rocky is such one of the most one of the best movies of all time. It really is. It's this great script. He won the you know the um it won the best Academy Award in 1976, and it's really the well structured. You know because he made all these other movies and you know that were kind of silly. Um, sometimes people take away credit that you know Rocky is one of the well written screenplays of all time. It's a love story, really, but it's about somebody that's trying to find their piece of the world and take ownership of that. And it's just an amazingly well-crafted, structured script. Mm, it really is. Like, that movie just never gets old. It never does. Yeah. 
But like, how did you kind of deal with like your te- with your tutor's doubts and you to become like an actor and be in this business? <laughs> I, I, first of all, yeah, no choice. I knew I wasn't going to work for anybody and I knew I wasn't going to like, you know, sad, be satisfied being a gardener. Not that there's mm-hmm. anything wrong being a gardener. It just wasn't my thing. You yeah. Know? And I saw my dad make millions and I was like, I, at least I just graduated high school. He never finished the eighth grade. So I'm just not going to, you know, have crazy drug filled orgies and like, you know, crazy stuff going on, like, you know, him living the real boogie nights, you know, <laughs> lifestyle, because that was kind of lifestyle that he led uh, in the seventies. And um, I uh, said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a family. I'm going to be loyal to my family. I'm going to, you know, make, you know, um, you know, something myself, you know, but I'm going to stay on the right track. I'm not going to go crazy like he did. Mm-hmm. Uh you could say I went a little crazy with, you know, producing a film, you know, and like, you know, my film was like, I was running a business out of my house, rented house, you know, this little rented house in Sherman Oaks. I had a film production being run out of there. You know, I even had like people coming and going and, you know, like at a gym in there. So friends are coming over to work out and stuff like that. So it was like, it was a really crazy atmosphere. And then you could say that I spent a lot of money on making movies, you know, but uh, I in the long run, I've taken care of the business and it's continued to grow. So that's like, when she told me that I said, nah, I know I can do this because I've seen somebody with less that did just as much. Mm-hmm. Because like, if you see someone doing it as well, that is in kind of like the same situation as you, it might be going through the same things that you experience in your life. You have to know that like, if they may through as an actor or someone in entertainment business, you know that you're going to get through too because if they did and they have so many struggles on their way with with making a movie because of course making a movie costs hundreds thousands millions of dollars to make and plus paying the actors because of course paying the actors is it's thing alone so it's like if you see that one guy or girl whatever you see um doing it you're like oh yeah i can definitely become that person too that's huge because you want to be you know tony robbins says success leaves clues so when you see somebody else doing something that you want to do well first of all just pick their brain and find out you know the who what where why when and how of how they did what they did and ask yourself multiple times and say how does that fit into what i can and can do and um you role model them you know and then you try to find the the people that were in your shoes and how did they do something similar and then you just try to you know and you know find out the algorithm of that Mm -hmm. and like you got your first role as a lead role of dirk dinkler in the richard short film the dirk dinkler story that later became the feature film boogie nights which you appear in as well like why did like did it like transition to the Booking nights or was it two separate things? Well, that was a great thing that you brought up is that when you see somebody else doing something. So when, yeah, it was just a short film. It was a student film that, you know, my friend Paul Thomas Anderson did. And I saw, you know, it was, he, I saw this thing, whole thing happen, you know, over a process of years of like, wow, you know, he'd spent, you know, time doing this and and then this happened and then that happened and that's how that happened so you saw that journey i was like ah that's how someone does that you know and and then you kind of role model that so that's how i was able to uh make my own films eventually because i saw how he did it you know Mm. and um you know so in the beginning it was just luck you know it was like i drove somebody home it was him and had him in stitches laughing you know and and a couple days later says i got an idea for a short film i want to do do you want to play this 
you know, the rise and fall of this porno actor. And I said, great, let's do it. And um, a few months later, you know, filmed it. And I never thought I was going to do anything. I never thought I never seen anybody do anything like, you know, something small and then blow it up like that. Other than my dad and his business, what he did, but I never thought anybody you know, make movies and make a small movie and make it into a huge movie. And seeing that process was amazing. So I learned a lot from that. And, but that's how that got started, something small. And then eventually he did his homework and he, he, you know, made things happen. And then he <laughs> invited me back to be, you know, have a small role in it, be it, but you know, still amazing process to see. Mm-hmm. Like what year was this? Like, did you guys uh, film it? Dirt Diggler story was made in 1988. Boogie Nights was shot in 1996 and came out in 97. And um, so there was a, there was a long period between there, you know, I wanted to play Dirt Diggler, but I understood that, you know, I was like, I was like, maybe I can play Dirt Diggler and Boogie Nights again, you know, but I was like, oh, they, they need a big star. They need a, and Mark Wahlberg would just got done with a small movie, but he had a reputation for being Mackie Mack and the Fresh Bunch. And he had like, you know, like a lot of Calvin Klein, you know, and he was, he was, you know, becoming a star. So um, I understood that, you know, and um, it, it turned out to be, it got nominated for Academy Award, you know, it was, it was mm-hmm. quite, quite, quite the feat to see that happen. It was a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And like, do you think like, do you think Mark Wahlberg would have been in that role? Honestly, like, do you think they would, uh, if Mark Wahlberg was as big as he was back in the 80s, 90s, do you think he, they would have casted him in the role? Well, yeah, I think that, you know, they would have needed, you know, it was about a $15 million budget with a $10 million, you know, advertising expense. So I don't know how big of a star they could have gotten. I think they were done it right. You know, first Paul was trying to get Leonardo DiCaprio, but he was busy shooting the Titanic. And then um, DiCaprio was, was friends with uh, Wahlberg because they were in basketball diaries together. So they, you know, they was like, well, let's maybe choose him. And and it was a good fit because he was just about to hit big as an actor. I think Boogie Nights helped him. I think if it weren't for Boogie Nights, I don't think Mark Wahlberg would have been as big as he is. I think definitely think that was a launching pad for a lot of actors. But um, he was already starting with Basketball Diaries and um, and uh, he was known, you know, for other things before that. And um, would he do it now as big as he is now? Well, one, he said that he it doesn't follow his religious beliefs. So he, I don't think he would do it. But I think it's really great that he did. Uh, I think it helped his career a lot. And I think it's definitely one of Paul Thomas Anderson's best movies and work of art. You know, and I'm just, I was privileged to see that happen, but I, I, th- I don't know if he would do it now. Yeah. Uh, you know, if he was, you know, he can go back and do it, but it, he should, because I think it really helped launch his career because it's a, it's a masterpiece. Mm, because like, if it wasn't for that certain role, Mark Wahlberg did, or he wouldn't be as busy as today because he was a uh, new kids on a block before he came before he became famous like officially marky famous. mark and the fresh bunch new kids on the block was his brother yeah yeah because him and donnie are brothers right right but like growing up you were diagnosed with a learning disability dyslexia and had a bed stutter like how did these uh diagnosis like kind of impact your life Oh, it makes you feel like shit. You know, it makes you feel like you can't do anything. It's like, what's wrong with me? You know, and there was no diagnosis for me, actually. It was just like, well, you're not doing well in school. Maybe you have a learning disability of some sort, but we don't know what's wrong with you. And then this weird stutter I had, basically, I, I didn't know, you know, how to really, it would only happen when I tried to, that beautiful lady that you said looked like Marilyn Monroe behind me in the pregame, you know, as my mom, she used to, she had a personality like Don Rickles and she talked so fast and everybody in my family, a big family talked so fast. So I was the youngest and I try to keep up. So I would stumble over my words. So my first acting teacher when I was 15 said, you know, take a cork, 
put it in your mouth and try to do your monologues and all your stuff with this cork in your mouth. And, and, and that helped me a lot because I would get tongue tied. It was a weird stutter. It wasn't like a, a conventional stutter. And I, and I did that for, you know, like a year, <laughs> you know, I would just practice with a cork in my mouth. And, uh, eventually, um, you know, I hit critical mass with learning, you know, you, the more you learn, the more you learn, mm -hmm. the more you, the more you try to learn, the easy it is to learn. So the combination of that plus the cork and, and really honing it, working on it, being proactive with it. I, you know, and I, I don't have a stutter and basically, uh, I, uh, a lot of the stuff, I do believe your brain has a muscle and you could work on, you know, I'm still discursive, even talking to now, you know, a bunch of ideas are flying through in my head, you know, discursively, you know, jumping around from place to place, but you, it, you can work on it like a muscle. So that's why I overcame those things. Mm -hmm. Like how did you kind of manage to kind of get through that process? Because obviously like when you deal with these, that kind of diagnosis, it can be very hard to kind of get through that and stuff. I know everyone processes it differently. I know with me, like I dealt with anxiety and got diagnosed with anxiety disorder a couple of years ago and it was so hard for me. And I know with every person dealing with diagnosis, it can be hard in different ways for people. Yeah. I wasn't diagnosed technically until I was an adult. So I didn't know what was happening. I just knew, I thought it was special, you know, and, and being from LA, I actually think it was an advantage because I live in Georgetown, Texas now, but in LA, if you're different, you're eccentric, you're special, you know? So yeah. I was like, Hey, I'm special. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm an, I'm an eccentric person. So I would, you know, I would do a bunch of things like really fast clip. I'm like, look how many things I could do. That's, that's good. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, counterproductive sometimes, but I would like, I would take pride in these things and um, you know, you, you fall over on your face quite a bit. So I just white knuckling it for a long time, not knowing, you know, like, I guess I, that's what I do, you know, and that's who I am. And I own that, you know, but then when I had the, somebody said, you know, you need to look into this because you definitely have that. And it was affecting my business in a sense when I had went to, went to a higher level because the more bigger your business gets, certain things show it's ugly head that you need to fix. So this person that was in the know said, you know, study. So I, I started studying it and I was able to pinpoint what the typical traits were at the same time. Your question was, you know, how do you deal with the diagnosis? Well, when I as an adult, because I went through so many years of personal development, I understood that you want to take these things with a grain of salt. You want to be able to not totally believe everything unless. So what I did was I said, okay, because first I got pissed when somebody told me I, was, I had ADHD. I was like, screw you. <laughs> you don't know that. So I said, okay, I looked into it and it's like, all right, I'm checking a lot of boxes here on this ADHD thing. Okay, great. So I also heard there's some super superpowers to it. I'm like, great. If I'm going to believe something, I could believe the good things as well as the bad. Okay, great. So I'm going to take all these good things that I have and say, well, because I have hyper-focus because I have this and they say, that's what the, I, what I have, I could do things that other people can't like that guy Einstein behind me. They said he had ADHD. I'm like, great. That enables me to do X, Y, and Z. Now the inabilities, the part, the negative parts of it, I said, I'm just going to pinpoint those things and work on them like a muscle, like, like I did when I saw the day I saw Rocky to the time I, you know, now it's just a muscle. You can grow it. Right. And I work on it that way. So those are the way to attack it. I don't, I don't, I believe the, the power, the enabling things. And I don't believe the disabling things. I just work on the disabling things, but I, I believe more on the enabling things. And that's how I handle those things.
Mm -hmm. Because like if you were diagnosed or some with a, a diagnosis like ADHD, it can be very hard to actually kind of tackle that ADHD diagnosis. And like I know with people with ADHD, like it can be very difficult. But then like when people are actually diagnosed with it, it can be very surreal. Thinking like, how do I have ADHD if I have all of these other things I'm dealing with at the exact same time? Right. Yeah. And my daughter quote, you know, and I tried to say it with a grain of salt, like it was diagnosed with ADHD, my youngest. And I was like, okay, you know, she says, you know, yeah, dad, because of my brain, it's a, I'm like, look, don't give yourself an excuse. Say, look, there's a probability you might, you know, choose to do one thing as opposed to another, because you have a variant, a variation of how your brain operates, but that doesn't mean anything. First of all, it's a muscle. You could work on it. I don't care what anybody else says. And Secondly, there's super powers to it. So, you know, believe, you know, the triad of emotions is a personal development thing, which is your physiology, your, your body and the way it moves, your focus and your words. And you can, you, and you need all three to really have change your state. So if I wanted you to be totally feel like you're a lottery winner, I can get that. I can get you to do that by you focusing on certain words internally and externally saying certain things out loud and, and, and saying things internally. Also can, I could change your physiology as I said, I want your face to do X, Y, and Z. I want your body to do X, Y, and Z right now. And I want you to focus on something. So if you like, if you have a bad diagnosis and you're like, every time you think about that, you, you slump your shoulders, your crest falling, you know, you're, you're low, shallow breathing. Okay. That's physiology of, you know, that's not enabling. And then um, if you also concentrate on, you know, negative words, disability, disabilitating words, you know, as opposed to enabling words, that's going to create an emotion and um, likewise with focus. So I, I you got to mind that. And I tell her to mind that with the way that she handles her diagnosis and um, to really, you know, change that. And also, and then also this is important each time because patterns where people are pattern driven people. So it's important to set a pattern and say, look, you know, I've been doing this for a year now. I'm believing X, Y, and Z whenever somebody says something or something comes up and then it's just becomes Pavlov conditioning to where you're conditioned to where you're, you know, operating from a higher place, no matter what anybody says that you have, or, you know, and you don't want to blame, you know, you don't want to give yourself an excuse to, to not operate optimally because you say you have some condition. Mm -hmm. And like, you are the host of the long shot leaders that tells the stories and secrets of leaders and overturers, interpreters and various high achievers. You explore their struggles, shortcomings, challenges and setbacks that ultimately lead to growth and betterment. Like what are some like kind of secrets to kind of grow your betterment or grow as a person? Yeah. So this is uh, doing a long shot leaders has been like a godsend, you know, it's so awesome because I, try to do every single interview. And I just try to interview somebody and say, what's your algorithm? You started from a low point. You went to a high point. What's the algorithm that got you to have the success? And there are key points that keep on coming up. And one is the mindset. It's Pavlov conditioning like we talked about, but you know, somebody that, you know, sets, you know, when they hit leverage, they hit a point of, you know, of, of, of so much a, a threshold point to where they can't stand it anymore and they need to take action and mm -hmm. they, they take an action and then it's succeeded and they, you know, they believe in that action. So then once you have one accomplishment, you believe in a second one. And once you do a second accomplishment, you believe you can have a third and it stacks on each other. So I've seen a lot of these people that have created patterns and that have created a positive. So 
creating, you know, positivity. And there's a lot of failure that goes along with that. So they're used to failing. Every great successful person has really failed. They really have, you know, so, but then they learned how to fail. They learned that when they fail, they ask themselves the right question. They're able to bounce back. So, and they also say like, well, what can I learn from this? What was funny about this? What can I, what is good about this situation? A lot of times when people fail, they're like, oh my God, this is so bad. I don't ever want to do this again. I'm just going to do something else. I'm not going to do anything like this again because it didn't work. That's like the worst thing. And, uh, you know, all these successful people don't ask questions like that. They ask themselves empowering questions and lead them in the right direction. So that was a big thing. My thing is, is that I, I try to, you know, ask myself the who, what, where, why, when, and how, and ask myself like the Toyota five whys. Toyota is a company that, you know, asks themselves, why is this? Why is that? Why is they ask them? It's called the Toyota five whys. That's why they're so successful. I try to ask that with the who, what, where, why, when, and how, and ask my five times. And that gives me scope of the situation. So when you come times to make decision-making, a lot of these high achievers make decisions from a very calculated point. So, and they have, they also, they take care of the body. They take care of their mind. They're actually make good decisions. And those are really some of the main bull, bullet points. As trite as that sounds, he's like, well, I kind of knew that. The last thing I'll say is this. They know that. And a lot of people have heard this information before. There's a difference between intellectual knowledge and physical knowledge. These people that are successful have taken the intellectual knowledge and then they have applied it into real life. Mm-hmm. And they've gone through the situation. Because you, you could tell everybody listening right now, conceptualize this idea of success. And I just gave you the bullet points. But then they need to take action, either fail or succeed with that action and go through with it so they know how to do it again and again because that's the difference between these successful people. They take the intellectual knowledge and make a physical knowledge. Mm-hmm. That is seriously well said because like, those two things are basically different in many ways. People probably think like, oh, they're the same thing and stuff, but like they're totally different because if you have like personal knowledge, it's about what you think and what you do and like in your knowledge about this career field. And like, that's the total opposite of like what you're trying to do on the other side of it. Yeah. And you know, yeah, I could tell you what a strawberry tastes like and I could say it's the seeds and the pulp is kind of soft and, and there's a sweetness to it, but until you taste the strawberry and actually start chewing on it and you, 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 you're not, you're going to have an ineffable, which means undescribable in words, understanding of that circumstance. And that's the same thing with these people that are successful. They take the intellectual knowledge. They understand it. Somebody has taught it to them. They, they've got the data, but now they need to apply it and go through a process of what that data is for. And there's a big difference to get used to how to succeed and follow through with the success to make that happen. Mm-hmm. And like the last thing I have for you is what is some advice for like podcast hosts or people that are dealing kind of with a disability, like ADHD? Well, advice for podcast hosts is get selflessly. If you have a guest on your show, uh, selflessly get involved with your guests. It's all about them. Like today yeah. I'm doing a lot of talking when I do mm-hmm. my podcast, I am constantly moment to moment impulsivity of, of trying to go inside and listen to every single word, get emotionally involved with the guest and just say, what are they saying? What are they feeling? What's going on with them right now? How do I feel about that? How do I, what, what, what are they, what's happening here? And I'm constantly moment to moment with them at every step of the way. I get selflessly involved in, in what's happening, what they're talking about. 
That's what I would say every podcast host needs to do. It's simple as that because great things will happen if you get selflessly involved in them. Great yeah. things will happen to you. The great things will happen to you if you get selfless with your personality is too, but that's a different story. Yeah, um, that's a whole different story. Yeah. So that's what, you know, if you don't have a guest, I would get selflessly involved in what your listeners want and then think about what your listeners are thinking about as you're saying it. Once again, it's all about you're doing something for a reason, for a service, you know? So I'm constantly thinking about people that are driving in their car or holding onto their cell phone or walking or do whatever, listening to me because I'm thinking about them. What do they need and want? So that's what I would say for podcasters. Um, and the second part, uh, there was a second part to your question, but I forgot what it was. Cause I got the, um, <laughs> yeah. Like what is like some advice, like, like advice, like kind of people that are dealing with ADHD or the same, they're doing the same diagnosis as kind of you or kind of dealing with the same things. I would take it all your diagnosis, uh, with grain of salt in the sense that, you know, you can be serious about it, but I would not give it ownership of finite situations. So if you're, if you're diagnosed with ADHD, someone told you you have that say, okay, first of all, realize you got superpowers, right? You want to believe some shit. You might as well be, believe that, you know? So you say you got hyper-focus. That means that when you're dealing with one thing that you really want to do with, you're going to be able to handle that better than anybody else, better than people that don't have this so-called condition, right? Then first of all, you want to get the nuts and bolts on ADHD. Um, You want to be able to simplify yourself. Take your ringer off your phone, clean up your files, make sure everything's neat and tidy. Make sure, you know, don't get obsessively compulsive in making things neat. Also deviating from your work, because that'll happen too. But -hmm. make sure that, you know, you um, keep everything simple and make sure that your process throughout the day are simple. Try to set a very simple process for things in your life so it doesn't take up your time to deviate because you'll get lost. Realize that, you know, that this is a muscle that tomorrow will be better than today, that you'll get better at it as long as you're aware of those things and um, realize that, you know, you can be, you can be just as much as in tune, whatever weakness they say ADHD has, you can be just as much in tune as somebody that eventually I believe you, you know, this problem goes away. It depends on how much time you spend on to it. These, these so-called issues are not issues anymore because depending on how much, you know, work you put into it and understanding it and, and, and applying it, you know, through, you know, physical changes throughout the day when that, that when it's two forty four in the afternoon and you decide that you're going to like deviate from something and you stop yourself, you physically jump out of your body and change the pattern. So when, if you do what is called a pattern interrupt, you, you can move forward and, and you'll get out of that state and you'll be, you'll get better at, at uh, getting rid of those issues that they have say so-called ADHD. Mm-hmm. Because like with people with ADHD, they always like to be um, obsessively kind of cleaning up things. I know with some people, they like to kind of clean up things like files or clean their house or keep their kind of space clean. That's how I am. I love to keep my space clean. Yes. If I don't, it kills me. But like yeah. with those type of things, like if you don't do it, it'll kill you for the rest of your day. It's like. If you don't do those things that are bothering you, then like it will continue to kill you. That's a part of ADHD. So like if you don't do what your ADHD isn't killing you, it's going to only keep getting worse from before. So if like if you just keep working on that project and work on that ADHD, whatever that's like 
meditation or doing that project that your ADHD is killing you for, going on a walk or whatever like you like to do. Because if you do those type of things that your ADHD is kind of bothering you, I know some ADHD people, they like to take medication. Medication is a good way to help you as well. But like to do those type of things, it will help your ADHD get better or worse. I don't know how like some medication stuff are because every ADHD with with ADHD with every person is different so I can't speak for everyone but you know everyone has a different experience and everyone kind of has their own personal way of kind of dealing with it absolutely yeah and I I'm, I'm that I was that person too I would get you know like selflessly involved in like just cleaning up the room and it's like wait I'm supposed to be doing xyz I'm, now I'm like I'm off on this tangent Really, sometimes you just need to sit yourself down and force yourself to do it and say, look, and, and do it in small chunks. You say, okay, fine. I really, I, I realize, I recognize that this is, I'm opt to do this sometimes that I'm going to force myself just to do 20 minutes. Okay. I'm just going to do this project for 20 minutes in little chunks or maybe 10 minutes. And then you put, you know, you, you put on a timer or whatever and just do it. Sometimes you'll end up doing it longer, but you just, you know, and also, if you set patterns for yourself, once again, because this really works well with me, and I know it probably works with a lot of other ADHD people, I'll say, look, at this part of the day, I usually work out. At that part of the day, I need to do um, some writing. So I'm going to make myself do that right after I do that every day. This is my routine. I, routines are really good for people that so-called ADHD. So set your routine and make sure if you're, if you find that an hour is too much time for you to do the writing, then don't only do 10 minutes. So, so the routine becomes real and you set it in motion. So once you, you build a nice, simple routine for yourself, you're not out cleaning because, Hey, you just did, you just worked out. Then you walked over to that area and now you're sitting down there and you're creating that routine that's sustainable and you're making it happen. You just make it a habit. So you got to find your routine and make it a habit which prevents you from going off and cleaning the house because you're like, it's, it was so simple for you just to sit 10 minutes and maybe take that little chunk. Mm-hmm, right. And like, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It means so much. You're such an amazing person and it was such a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you so much for everyone that listening. Thank you again for coming on. That's very nice. Thank you very much. Of course. Have a good rest of your day.